Hey, what's up, everybody? Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about our new partners, Carney Sando and Associates. Carney Sando and Associates helps educators find jobs that support their goals as teachers and school administrators. An education recruiting firm working with K through 12 independent private and charter schools across the globe, Carney Sando provides a free personalized job search service. When you sign up, you are paired with a highly qualified placement associate who will coach you through the search process, review your resume, and advocate on your behalf to schools you're interested in. With a 45-year history of placing talented people in over 1,800 different schools, you can trust the team to find you roles that fit what you are looking for. When it comes to job seeking, relationships matter, and Carney Sando has the connections you need to find your ideal position. Visit CarneySando.com slash 2Dope to schedule a time to speak with a member of their recruitment team. That's CarneySando.com slash 2Dope. C-A-R-N-E-Y-S-A-N-D-O-E dot com slash too dope and you can schedule a time to speak with a member of their recruitment team executive producer of Two Dope Productions and co-host of the most dangerous podcast in the schoolhouse, Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. I am so hyped to bring you my new podcast from Two Dope Productions, The Chicano Logs. Um, the Chicano Logs is really just my search for myself as a researcher, as a writer, as a thinker, as a human. Um, honestly, I'm just a little Chicanito from the east side who wants to get to know the world a little bit better. Um, every couple of weeks, I'm going to bring you dialogues, monologues, analogues, apologues, duologues, epilogues, prologues, homologues, ideologues, and maybe even the occasional travelogue. <laughs> I have fun with that. Um, I'll bring you ruminations, meditations, and conversations that I hope make you feel seen, encouraged, informed, and connected. Um, to get your regular dose of illosophy, ill-conceived ideas, illiteracy, and illogic, remember that I, the Illosopher King, your critical conscience, am excited to learn from and with you all. Uh, you can find the Chicano Logs on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you find podcasts. Today I'm bringing you an episode that is um, a, a long time coming, needed to get it out uh, a little bit earlier than this, but hopefully I can get this dropped um, prior and in, in front of your ears, really, prior to the mayoral election here in our city of Denver. If you're not in Denver, I really think that you should listen to my guest, Lisa Calderon, Dr. Doctora Lisa Calderon. Um, who agreed to come on this podcast to talk a little bit about her experiences growing up in the East Side like me and um, moving into uh, civil service and community leadership. Um, you know, this election has been kind of, I don't even know the word, a little bit frustrating to follow. Um, I've learned a couple of valuable lessons. Uh, don't go to Twitter for thoughtful, nuanced conversation, and you know you're going to be like, hit a, like that's exactly where you do not 
find the kind of conversation that you seek on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> but I'm addicted. I can't. I can't get off Twitter. I can't help myself. I can't be safe. Probably. But the big thing for me is it's it's really difficult to sort through the noise of an election campaign, especially when there were, I think there were close to 20 candidates at the beginning of this whole process. It was pared down to 17, then it went down to 16, um, which means I can now shop at the Tattered Cover bookstore again, or maybe not. I don't know. I haven't made a decision there. Um, but it's really difficult. Um, I spent a lot of time kind of going through the various candidates. I reached out to some. I specifically did not reach out to others. And um, what you are hearing today is uh, the person I was able to confirm an interview with. Um, I really have a lot of respect for Lisa. Um, we've shared a community for a pretty long time. Um, she knew me as a teacher at my last school, and uh, she's a person who I just think has a lot of really important things to say, um, and I would be lying if I said I did not hope uh, that she did well in this, um, in this election coming up. Um, one of the things that I thought was really important about the conversation I had with Dr. Calderon uh, was to hear her uh, position on housing insecurity, to hear her positions on addressing poverty and um, addressing racism in our city, um, which <clears throat> I have to call something out. We had somebody uh, invent an email address and comment on my interview with Syra Rao, author of White Women, Everything You Know About Your Own Racism and How to Be Better, and called out um, our disdain and our kind of collective snark when it came to how racism and um, anti-blackness show up in the city of Denver. Listen, y'all, like, I grew up here. I've been here for almost 50 years. You don't get to tell me um, how I'm supposed to see my city. And this, if you're an individual who needs to invent an email address and a name to avoid detection, um, then I can't do nothing for you, man. Like, that's, that's <laughs> I can't really help you um, to, to call me out of touch um, is wild to me, uh, because it's just another example of folks passing judgment about me as a person and as a scholar and as a member in, of the community, as an educator, without actually knowing anything about me. So, um, I think that you're going to hear some, uh, some critical comments about, um, the direction of the city today. Um, I think you're going to hear some things that maybe you don't love to hear, um, but I think we need to be able to sit in that space before we react um, in our feelings. I I've had a lot of experiences with people's feelings lately, and, you know, it is what it is, and, uh, you know, we, we move on. But, you know, I would also be lying if I told you that I wasn't sensitive to some of this stuff. Um, so, um, so without further ado, I'm going to bring you this, uh, interview with Dr. Calderon. I hope it helps you think through some things. I hope it helps you humanize this mayoral race, um, and to understand that even if our person doesn't necessarily win, 
um, that we have a responsibility to speak truth to our uh, city and its leaders. And so without further ado, here is Chicano Logs, episode two, Lisa Calderon. Hey, yo, what's going on, everybody? It is me, Gerardo Munoz, and you are listening to the Chicano Logs. Yeah, super excited. Episode two of the Chicano Logs. We are a Two Dope production, so if you went on the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast feed and you're like, wait a minute, did I tap the wrong podcast? Wait, what am I listening to? Don't worry. We're still Two Dope. We stay this way. It's how it is. I am your critical friend, your critical conscience. I have critical conversations with people just as this little Eastside Chicanito trying to understand the world. Um, I am here, I'm super excited about this. I am here with somebody that I didn't realize I had so many connections to until about 15 minutes ago. Um, we have, so I taught, as a lot of you all know, for a really long time, and it turns out that this individual raised one of my former students. So exciting, and the student came out great. So like, in case you're wondering about that, She's amazing. But um, I'm here with Denver mayoral candidate, Lisa Calderon. Lisa, thank you for being interviewed with me today. Thank you, I'm so excited. This is cool, <laughs> this is cool. Um, so real quick, coming into, like, so we are in, the, in my old neighborhood, um, your old neighborhood, our old neighborhood, doing this conversation, and um, it's so cool to be back. Um, I don't spend nearly enough time here now that you know, life has kind of taken over, um, but but you you've kept it real, staying here. Well, welcome back to the East Side. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I I'm fourth generation. Yep. And my my grandmother, my grandparents um, live on the North Side, or they lived on the North Side. Yep. So I went to Skinner and Holy Family in North over oh, okay, there. Okay. Okay. Brown Elementary. Yeah. We were really going way back. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and my my mother who um, had me at seventeen, my you know she relied on her family. Yeah. Um, to help uh, raise me, but my father who's black. Yeah. Um, so my Mexican, my Mexican part of my family was on the north side. My yeah. black side of my family is on the east on side. On the east side, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was back and forth. That's why I'm like, I was, you know, my later years, um, especially uh, my adolescent years, I should say, were on the north side. My early um, growing up years were also on the west side. Because okay. Because we lived in Westridge Project. So you like know all the sides. Well, I know all the sides <laughs> and also in, in Westwood too. We yeah. lived in um, public housing in Westwood and I went to St. Anthony's. Okay. Over there, and recently walked around the neighborhood. I mean, it's it's stunning. Like you yeah. just said, coming back, like the flood of memories, and yeah. and seeing. Uh, I I resaw life as I did as a child. So mm. it's, I love that. Yeah. No, it's, it, that that's amazing. Like, and and I don't want to say too much about what I've seen because when you are living a life in civil service, you don't necessarily want everybody to know your location. <laughs> but I'll tell you. So I I was born and raised over. I was actually born 10 minutes from here at St. Joseph's Hospital. 
Um, and um, allegedly the power went out when I was born, which maybe was just a sign of things to come. <laughs> I, I, I took it all in. Uh-huh. Um, and then so I went to I went to Mitchell for ECE in kindergarten. And then the keys decision happened. And so out of nowhere, I'm on a bus going to Steck Elementary way over there in Hilltop. And that was a that was a whole thing. Um, came back to the neighborhood, went to Cole Middle School, graduated from Manual High School. And, you know, I passed through the neighborhood a lot and, um, and it is really fascinating. I guess, I guess the first question I want to ask you is in terms of being, and it's wild to me to talk to somebody who knows the city. Like there are so many people that I come into contact with in my work. They're like, well, I've been here for five years. I've been here for 10 years. Oh, I, I stayed here after college. And so it's not always the same conversation as it is with a, a fellow person who is from Denver and also a fellow Eastsider along with the other things. How has um, being raised in this city and, and growing up in these black and brown neighborhoods and being in these communities influenced the person who you are? And how does that inform your passion for public service? Oh, it- it informs everything. Um, I ran in 2019, yeah. and that was the main reason I jumped in. Um, you know, I came in third, and yeah. not knowing what I was doing, having very little money going up against an incumbent uh, who was indifferent to the fact that um, Latino Chicano communities were number one in displacement yeah. in the nation. And wow. black folks, we were also number two. Yeah. So I got it from both sides of my family wow. and my cultures that we were being pushed out at this unprecedented rate. Yeah. And we couldn't get them to listen to us. And us, by us, I mean Candy Cedabaca. Yeah. Um, we organized same reasons. She was on. So we're in the cold neighborhood where yeah. I live. Yeah. Um, Candy's on the other side of the the highway. Okay. And had been a strong advocate for Globeville, Larius Tonsia neighborhoods. The same thing, like she was stunned by the trajectory our city was taking when she came back from her work in D.C. after she attended college. And so we tried to get people to run because we saw the disinvestment of our neighborhoods happening very quickly with rapid gentrification. And, um, And so we tried to get other people to run. Uh, we talked each other into running yeah. essentially <laughs> and our communities as well pushed us to run yeah. so you know running for office is hard you know what's gonna happen to you um, as Audrey Lord has talked about when you become visible you become a target yeah. but we're also the way we were raised in our communities we we grew up targets that's right we grew up targets right. of of the police yep. and being racially profiled yeah. um, in our families and you know, poverty is also yeah. brutal. It's a form yeah. of violence. And, and, and when you have to that. mention poverty is like the third thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, it, it does say something about yeah. the layers of, of struggle and oppression that occur. Exactly. And so it was just another level of struggle. Like, I am proud of the background that I've come from. Yeah. Um, and even though we didn't have a lot, we were poor. My first organizing experience was on the picket line with my mother, who was active in the Chicano student movement. Yeah. Um, and she was a student at, at um, UC Denver and active with the Migrant Farm Workers Union. Yeah. So I was on the picket line with her boycotting grapes yeah. and lettuce um, on 23rd and, what is it, 26th and Federal, I think. Yeah. 
And that's where my grandparents lived. And so I was just really like, Mom, why can't we eat the grapes? Because we... <laughs> I had the same, no, I had the same experience. I had no idea why we could not have grapes in the house. And I actually thought the grapes were what was bad, not the the things like behind it. Because I think I think my parents just figured I was a little too young to try, kind of explain it. Of course, my daughter has known about um, workers' rights and unions since she could walk. But mm-hmm. but it was one of the, I thought there was something wrong with the grapes. I'm like, what's wrong? grapes exactly <laughs> so when you know when i asked her why we couldn't eat them because it was also seasonal back then right, you remember? That's right that's right and so you had to wait a whole year from one summer to the next yeah. to have grapes we were also on food stamps and we had commodities commodity cheese and all that stuff so grapes were like a delicacy yeah and um so when i asked her uh and she said because there's blood on them mm. and then i actually thought there was There's actually literally blood, blood on, on them. them. <laughs> so it, when I would go into Safeway, I would look for the blood speckles. But, <laughs> right. you know, that was my five-year-old yeah. mind. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we then come, I came to understand that it was about the struggle. That even when we had very little, very little, you know, food or wealth or whatever, we still had our voices and our bodies yeah. that we could put on the line. And and so that was written into my DNA early. My, my grandmother was a migrant farm worker. Yeah. So I feel like the fact that I am running for office today was something that she had hopes and dreams that she could never fulfill. So I'm also running for her. Wow. Wow. But no, that's really deep. And I think um, in very real ways, you know, standing on the shoulders of those came, who came before. That's a really powerful thing. There's a couple, couple of things you said there that I think are, are really interesting. Um, one of one of them is 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 a topic that I've I've heard you speak on and have seen some of your quotes on, which is around displacement. Can you talk a little bit when when we speak of displacement, what are we speaking of, particularly when it comes to Black and Brown communities in Denver? Yeah, displacement is a form of violence. Um, when because we're we're talking about the loss of your home, and when you lose your home, you often lose your community. Right. And our cultural communities have been so, you know, integral to our survival. Mm-hmm. So I I sometimes get um, disoriented. In Denver, yeah, because the cultural landmarks and, and spaces aren't there anymore, Ooh, or they're overshadowed part, by part. places that we don't recognize, aren't created for us, yeah. And so it's disorienting. Yeah. But displacement. Think about it. When you lose your home, it's right up there with the death of a loved one, yeah. a divorce, or whatever. It's this profound sense of loss of your a piece of yourself. Yeah. And um, when I moved into this neighborhood in 2005, or actually the end of 2004, there were a lot more black and brown families. Um, The uh, entity next door, the building next door, was Latino families. And there were at least three of them. And now it's an Airbnb. Um, hotel, even though they try to hide oh, it and make right. it seem like it's one unit. <laughs> right, it's not. Right. We see the people going in and out. <laughs> and it is, you know, so we've lost housing for people. Yeah. And we've lost uh, low-income housing for people. Yep. And we get no say in that. Right. And so 
um, when I look out my door, every day I see loss. Um, But I also see opportunity for how can we reverse this tide? And that's one of the reasons I'm running is that there are things that we can do, but it, we're getting to the, the place where it's almost too late, right? If we get a mayor, the next 12 years potentially are going to, you know, it's an eradication kind of strategy. When we look at the, um, aggressive aggressive real estate market yeah that is taking historically black and brown homes and and displacing our communities yeah i i really appreciate the use of the term displacement because what i hear you describing is more than being impacted by homelessness more than not having shelter but it's also about roots in a community about community ownership of a space you were talking about the landmarks that aren't there anymore um i remember uh i've always driven through downtown to get to where i was working whether it was teaching at the school or working in dps central which is where i work right now and i remember the moment when they removed the soccer goals from curtis park Mm -hmm. because i grew up playing soccer there my dad uh, started the curtis park soccer association there like we were the only um, soccer club that was functioning for the kids in this neighborhood and he recruited out of the housing developments and he recruited in the rec centers and places like that and I just remember my heart sunk because I'm like I mean the creamery is still there but the but the soccer goals and and so and I can't even imagine how others view that and it's like and then you hear the rhetoric of progress right well it's progress it's better than it used to be and um and it just and it just hurts um well and curtis park is uh an informal dog park a lot of the yes, days also and i love dogs i've got dogs yep, but there's yep, a reason yep. why we have leash laws. dogs need spaces yeah they need, to, spaces, yeah, they need but spaces so do black and brown kids yeah. and that's who used to really you know run around in that park use the swimming pool and now, you know, you see the changing and when you see the kids disappearing, that's our future wow. generation. Yeah. And that's what yeah. I see each summer living here. Fewer black and brown kids in, in, in Curtis Park. Yeah. Yeah. That's heavy. And, and you know, the, when, when you talk about the kids like leaving, that's, that's actually, you're helping me put together all this, like all these memories that I didn't realize were still kind of there. But that's how my dad recruited for his soccer teams is that, there were kids that were just hanging around and they would kind of jokingly say, hey, can we play? And my dad's like, yeah, come play. Like, come play. You want to be on a team? Oh, we don't have the money. It's okay. We're going to, we're going to, we have sponsorship. We're going to fundraise, do all these kinds of things. And that's how he drew a lot of kids like in, into that environment. Um, that's really deep. So one of the things you talked about was, um, was the, an incumbent administration that wasn't taking action around these things and what you'll hear from a lot of spaces is well you can't stop progress you can't stop change you can't create policy that's going to limit the type of development that we're seeing and um and and you know these are the same folks who frequently won't even name that the development has harmful impacts right um what is it that the mayor of denver can and should be doing to ensure 
that displacement is not happening in our community to our communities not in our communities to our communities the um so i've gotten into social media back and forth with, <laughs> yes, with the, I've seen. okay <laughs> the white yimbies yes because what they have done in denver is co-opted our social justice language yes to suit themselves yes and it's to, like that saviorism piece, exactly right? and 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 centered themselves in the um, uh, affordable accessible housing debate yeah. so therefore building everything everywhere anytime for anybody and we know that's not the solution no. because when you talk about building without intentionality that means our property taxes are going up that means our those so-called affordable housing units the crumbs that they throw that's us right. that's are based right. on area median income, which is going up yep. rapidly year after year. Yep. So that standard isn't protecting us. Um, you know, so we're not. They're not talking about social housing, mm -hmm. which uh, instead of getting um, up to, I think the ordinance here is up to twelve percent required of affordable housing. Well, that's you know again that's crumbs of units when we could be spending up to. Um, or building for up to 60% affordable mm. through social housing, yeah. which means that nobody spends more than 30% of their income. You go up to 120% AMI, so you have fewer rich people at the top who can pay, but yeah. they're subsidizing more of the masses mm -hmm. who are paying lower income, but we're all in really nice units, so you yeah. can't tell who has more or less right. income based upon the units because yeah. everything is created you know equally in terms of how it's built and the amenities yeah. and all of that so you know you know it, it infuriates me to see especially people who haven't been here that long telling mm -hmm. us that we need to move mm. telling our elders that they need to yeah. essentially let go yeah. of their properties yeah. And that's not the way to have this conversation. At all. Like, we all know we need more attainable, affordable housing. We do need more density. How we do that really does matter. And that's why I don't support the Park Hill Golf Course development. Yeah. Um, the uh, GES neighborhoods, predominantly Latino, mm -hmm. did not have a full say in what that development should look like right. if any development at all yep. it was a deal made in the back room which often happens to 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 us by leaving us out of the table and in, in the dark yeah. that's not how we should be building a housing plan is with a corporate developer yeah. setting the terms yep. and we need a regional park in that area it is yeah. a heat island yeah and this presumption that people of color don't care as much about the environment <laughs> when we are, you know, we bear the brunt yeah. of, uh, you know, the climate crisis right. disproportionately. Yep. So, you know, and it raises the issue of false choices that we could either have affordable housing or green space. When hmm. in fact, we could have both. Um, and this whole thing about holding a, a supermarket when we actually do, there is a supermarket yeah off of colorado yep. near the golf course um that is you know asian owned but it's like we can't go to their supermarket right no yeah. we've got to have, gotta our, have our own, own. got to have our own and so it's just been a very divisive toxic and it has pitted communities of color historically black communities against historically latino communities. communities 
And that's not the way we should be doing housing policy. Yeah, that that's incredible. That's the thing that that I've witnessed is just constantly asking myself the question of, I mean, somebody's got to have some say over how how we develop things. Like, don't we have guidelines around city contracts and things like this? Well, and so to it's your, such an interesting thing that so, we can get around those so easily. Yeah, and so to your question, what can a mayor do? Mayor could do a lot. Um, this, you know, so Mayor Hancock, who is going to be out very shortly. Yeah. Uh, when we were pushing back, uh, coalitions of folks pushing back at our community displacement and divestment, his excuse was, oh, that's just market forces and there's nothing I could do. And, you know, market forces are created by um, land speculators and that's the real right. estate industry and, um, you know, investment brokers. People and with the that. capital to exactly. dictate the terms of the game. Exactly. Yeah. And instead, you know, so we, there are things that we can do in terms of providing people stability in their homes. I'll give you an example yeah. myself. Yeah. So this, you know, we're in a 1894 Victorian home that I live in. We were able to get it through a, um, uh, being, uh, my uh, former husband was an enrolled member of uh, the Navajo Nation. Yeah. So he was able to get what's called a Section 184 loan that applied okay. to then our family. Yeah. And that allowed us, it's like a VA loan. You yeah. could qualify for more house with less down payment. Yep. Those kinds of programs, yeah. uh, like a first time home buyer's yeah. program, etc., yeah. really does open up the market. Yeah. If we really want to talk about the market, it really opens it up for our people. Yeah, 100%. And the same thing, there's, um, you know, if you are, so there's various loans like that, that we need. But, so then we went through a recession and uh, got underwater yeah. with the loan, like a lot okay. of black and this was like the did. this was like the subprime so the, crisis. Exactly, in so around 2007, 2008. Yep. Yep. Um, so we got behind, not on our first mortgage, because I was like, you know, we're going to keep our house. We're yeah, going to yeah, take yeah, our house. Yeah, yeah. But we had a second for home repairs. And the second, because we got behind on that by about $1,200, yeah. they then jumped to the front of the line and said, we can now take your home. Wow. Over $1,200. So which even, ostensibly isn't even the mortgage payment. Exactly. Like. <laughs> exactly. Wow. And we were like, how could this happen? You know, I'm... I'm an educated woman. Yeah. I have four degrees, including a law degree and a doctorate, but it happened so fast. We yeah. didn't even know yeah. our house was put on the auction block by the time they put a notice on wow. our door. So, you know, long story short, That's we were unreal. able to save our home, building coalition. I started testifying about yeah. this is wrong, but we couldn't get any relief from the city. Wow. No one would help us because wow. they were just rubber stamping yep. these yep. foreclosures yep. down at the clerk and recorder's office. Well, that's where you see the disdain for people in struggle, right? Like, we know that our systems tend to have a hatred of people who are experiencing poverty right. or experiencing, even if it's just like a lull in what you're able to kind of do because of economic for economic forces. Um, and, and that was always... So my spouse worked in in home loans at, at a bank at the time, and one of the things that eventually caused her to leave that industry was that the toxic 
talk around the people who are experiencing foreclosures, the stuff that, well, they should have known before they bought this house that they couldn't afford. They should have known X, Y, and Z, but zero conversation around the unscrupulous people who lent people money and created these predatory terms. And it sounds a little bit like that's what you experienced with that second. Exactly. The, the, the you know, we're still living in a time of redlining, right? Yeah. We just oh, don't call yeah. it that. No. <laughs> and, you know, redlining is, right, that only certain people, people of color can only live in certain neighborhoods, but now we're doing it by home, essentially. Like, we want that home. Right. Or we want that that tract of That's homes. Right. That's right. And so how do we make it harder for them to stay? We saw this in Green Valley Ranch with those 55 yep. homes yep. taken by the HOAs. Those yep. were... Uh, you know, disproportionately black and brown black properties. Black and brown people, yeah. And so if you're going to be put out of a home because you have an oil stain on yeah. your driveway, yeah. and nuts. and a lot of those people didn't even know that they were being fined, they were, the fines were racking yep. up, but this yep. is what got them, some of them, and also got me, which it wasn't just a 1200 by the time you get notice of all of this, it can it goes into the thousands. That's right. It's accrued, and they have all these penalties it's the and all penalties these things. interest penalties and the lawyer fees. Oh. And and mm-hmm. now yeah. there's no way you could pay that. Yeah. Right. So as mayor, it would have been so much easier to be like Lisa. It's going to be more expensive for you to be homeless and your family to be homeless. Yeah. Then we provide you this twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. And you are now current, and everything is fine. Yeah. We don't have funds like that to yeah. just help people stay in their homes. And that's where, whether it be mortgage assistance or eviction defense yeah. and eviction funds, yeah. it is so much cheaper to spend on the front end to keep people in. But we know that that's not just about keeping people in their homes. Right. People want to, um, unscrupulous landlords want to evict people. They do. And, and then raise the rent for more higher paying people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not all landlords, of course. I have a friend who's a black woman who's sure, a landlord sure. who's doing Section 8 housing. And she can't afford to keep up with the fines and the fees and all of the upgrades that are needed. She's yeah. a landlord who wants to do the right thing. And she's like, I may have to sell. And you know, if I sell, it could be a luxury developer. Yep, who's going to buy and it? And it's not Section 8 housing anymore. Yeah. So we also need to have funds for people like her so that she can comply with where we're going in a new, you know, cli- more much more climate yeah. uh, responsive economy. Yeah, um, yeah, that that it's it's amazing because it's you know as I'm I'm an educator. I'm not a public policy person. I'm not. That's not where my my deeper knowledge is. And just hearing you sort of name, you know interventions that can come from city hall um i kind of am approaching this election kind of i'm just like how do we like fix this stuff and it's not it's not that i've viewed it as not fixable it's just knowing whether people have the will to do the things that are needed and so when you outline these very specific ways to address this um i think that's incredible um i want to respect your time we only have a few minutes so a couple of questions to close us out um, so what are the things that are kind of top line for you uh, once you're elected mayor? Well, top line is you had alluded to my daughter earlier in the conversation. Yeah. 
and she <laughs> Shout was out. doing amazing. <laughs> and she went on to get her master's yeah. in a great paying job. Yeah. And she lives here. We live together because she cannot oh, afford man. to also own her own home. Wow. So I want to make sure that you don't have to be here four generations like me yeah. to own your home. Yeah. I want to have a very aggressive plan for abating uh, gentrification and displacement. There are things that we absolutely could do. I talked about some of them, um, that immediate assistance, but really it comes down to who are we valuing in this city. And so we have neighborhoods like GES, like Westwood, like in Montbello. If we wanna make sure that we keep our black and brown communities that we then we have to invest in them. That's right. And invest from everything from um, providing subsidies for small businesses so they could also pay their rent. <laughs> yeah. So that we could have the kinds so of So we can actually have small businesses like where I live, <laughs> the only new businesses are national chains and we don't have family owned small businesses in our neighborhood and and it's and it's like that's the thing from growing up here and then I lived on the north side for over 10 years. And just knowing that that was always the tradition, that that's huge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's part of what makes you feel this is home. Yeah, I can walk down the street and I can get the kind of Mexican food that I like. Yeah. And I like different kinds of Mexican food. That's right. Food, there's a lot of different, different kinds. Different options. Newsflash, y'all. There's a lot of different <laughs> kinds. <laughs> um, and so uh, the businesses are important. Um, we talked about um, the eviction defense, but also rent control. Yes. We need to be able to have a budget from you know year to year or even from, sometimes it shifts even across months. Yeah. So if we're gonna have our people stay here, we need to have these you know sustainable ways that we can pay and live and yeah. afford to live here. And that includes also good paying jobs. Yeah. I'm a big supporter of unions. My grandfather, was able to raise 11 children on a good yep. union job. Yep. And we also My dad, that's local been, seven. There you go. <laughs> that has been the pathway to the middle class for yeah. a lot of black and brown families. Yeah. Um, and just with the rent mm-hmm. control, it, it was really stunning to watching some of the debates and how few of your fellow candidates are willing to support something like rent control. It, it blows my mind. Um, and I've been consistent. I yes, mean, honestly, have. living in the projects, that was rent control. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it really was. Uh, yeah. and, and and so you know, you, you knew you weren't going to be on the street because yeah. we could afford that. And it's interesting now seeing some of these candidates flip-flopping on mm-hmm. that. Oh, yeah. Um, but I've been consistent yeah. uh, about, you know, I want to also have uh, unionization for city workers. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to pay one way or the other. We are. We are. And it's always cheaper. And now I'm speaking as a criminal justice professor, a teacher Regis right now, and CU Boulder, race, crime, and law. Uh, (laughs) I'll have to talk about that sometimes. Oh, wow. I want to take that class. Yeah. (laughs) But but it's always cheaper on prevention. Yeah. as As opposed to the incarceration that is being done on the other side, homeless folks and the sweeps. Um, jailing, we we have some scary candidates really in this do. race talking oh, about arresting people, and that's not really jail. Well, where do you think they're going to go <laughs> and arrest them? Where are they going to? Uh, let's get and real. not addressing the you know the the safety issues and getting into the really deep things that people need. It's funny because you talk about how we're going to pay either way, and there's one that costs less and one that. So a few years ago, my car broke down, died because I hadn't changed the oil in a really really long time. And so I was going to pay either way. I was either going to pay a little bit to just get regular oil changes or I was going to have to buy a new car. Is that what we want? Do we have to, do we want to have to buy a new car? 
or that we're now having to put all these other resources into as opposed to you know, bro, if you had just changed your oil a couple of times, exactly, it would have been okay. <laughs> exactly. If we would just pay to help keep people stay in their homes, yeah. it's much cheaper than them being displaced and or incarcerating people. You know, I used to run the city's reentry program yeah. and I did that for eight years. And just a few days in jail, and this is verified by the Vera Institute through their research, yeah. could have life-changing you know circumstances that are like a snowball effect yeah so you're in jail and you can't reach your employer or you talk to your employer and you tell them you're in jail you lose your job yeah you lose your job you without even knowing why or without what even happened what the circumstances the stigma, exactly. guilty and until you're not proven convicted. innocent no that's right, right? that's you're right you're just arrested you're that's not convicted right. that's right you lose your job, you lose your housing, you can lose your family or yeah. your children, yeah. and then now you're like self-medicating potentially because like life sucks. Yeah, um, and the now, spiral happens exactly. so quickly. And so now what are those costs? You're in jail, in and out of jail, and addiction issues, whatever that is. Yeah. When we could have just helped somebody from the very beginning. That's right. And that's the people that I've worked with for eight years in and out of incarceration. Yeah. So I'm determined that we don't go back. Yeah. We have fought too hard through all of our social justice movements yeah. to not take this narrative that Denver is a scary, dark place yeah. and we need more police yeah. and we need to essentially, you know, yeah, I disappear saw one, us. I saw one candidate rolling out this very militaristic message and uh, talking about adding 400 cops, and I'm like, <laughs> it's a, well, wow. It's, and we think that's a message for this city. We think that's what our communities are going to respond to. <laughs> and it's, it's a race to the bottom in terms of you can't tell, even though there's only one official Republican in this race, right. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to tell that if you just heard these people speaking. Nope. Because they are running very much to the right. Yes. Back to law and order, which we know was code back in the, from the Nixon years. From the Nixon And years. the Southern strategy, yep. Yep. which was code for, you know, more crackdown on people of color. Yep. And we cannot go back. And as mayor, I will ensure that that not happen, yeah. that our communities, our cultural communities thrive, that have been neglected. And it's totally possible. Yeah. Like we have to believe that homelessness is solvable because right. it is. It is. We have to believe that police violence is, uh, doesn't have to be because mm -hmm. we can be totally re-envisioning how we, you know, have come community safety that's yeah. the conversation that needs to shift yeah. is community safety and that's not dependent on having more policing of our communities yeah that that's so inspiring um in the last couple of minutes uh what is it that gives you joy <laughs> and that and that can be that can be related to you know public service and community work but it can it can also just be what gives you joy i i already got an answer for you because All right. <laughs> I, well and i wanted my campaign to be about joy because yeah. we have been hearing for so long how terrible denver is and that's not how i experience denver yeah. this is my home yeah. i love denver yeah. and so just by going out walking with my daughter and our dogs yeah. i still love looking at the architecture yeah. in Denver and our parks and our just in our communities that yeah. roots me 
And it really is true. There's science behind that. Go outside. Go outside. <laughs> and it's, you know, and I'm also aware that a lot of our communities are struggling just to breathe. Yeah. yeah. Um, with all of the pollutants, we're not very oh, far from Suncor. Suncor. Right. But I Rip. haven't even exactly. <laughs> but that's what gives me joy is being outdoors yeah. and you know being grounded um, uh, with the, the the earth and the the air and the sun on my face. I am good to go. I love it. I love it. Uh, top five favorite things about the city of Denver? Uh, places to eat when you know where to go. All right, all my, right. my go-to default for uh, Mexican food is El Taco de Mexico. Okay. And all just right. like quick, let me yeah, get it. Yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. got my fix. <laughs> um, the view of the mountains. Yes. And I, you know... I was in Girl Scouts when I was little, so right. we didn't have ready transportation to the right. mountains. Now I, do. now I do, so I try to get out there when I can. It's hard when you're campaigning. Yep, yep. Um, the our park, City Park, is one of my favorite yeah, places to go. It's not too far from here, yep. and you can go to different parts of the park and mm-hmm. feel like you're in different parts. That's and it's right, all City Park. Yeah. Um, our, I'm a DPS graduate. There you go, North High so School. So is my That's daughter. Right. Yeah. yeah, North High School, Vikings. <laughs> That's today. right. Um, so I still believe in our schools and supporting our teachers. Um, so I, that's why I listen to your podcast. No, that's that's great, and I won't hold the Viking sings against. So okay, for me, it's, no, for me, it's always the Manual High School, <laughs> T Bolts, all that kind of stuff. Right, but, I know. My, but we understand. I get it. I get it. My son graduated from E, so oh, man, shout out there. I know that part. Um, and then I guess the last thing, because I think I'm on five. I think now. yeah, I think this is five. Really is our cultural communities. I know that I can go to various parts in this city, and and I know where to find our people. Yeah, and that always grounds me in home. And yeah. so that's what again I don't want to lose, and yeah. I I want to grow it. Yeah. Lisa Calderon, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your stories and sharing your visions and sharing your joy. It's been really beautiful. Thank you for being here on the Chicano Logs. Thank you. This is great for my soul, especially <laughs> now as we are just a little ways away from the yep. election yep. on April 4th. Get out there and vote, people. Get Please out vote. There and, vote. And, and you can vote all the way up until the election once the ballots drop on uh, the 13th of March. Yep, that's right. So ballots drop in about a week and a half is what it looks like. And uh, get out there and vote, y'all. It's it's one of the only pieces of our voice that we still have control of. And so, can I just say real quick? Absolutely. Colorado is one of the easiest places you can vote in. That's right. And some of I've had this question. Some of our people who have criminal records, mm-hmm. you can vote. Yep. So don't think you can't vote yep. if you are on parole. You you know you're still considered under supervision. Yep. But if you are on probation, you can vote. Yes. So, um, but just don't let a criminal conviction stop you from voting. And it's, you can just go and ask at any voting station. Yep. So. Can I vote? Yes. That's right. Well, thanks again for being here, and um, really best of luck to you. It's it's wild out there um, with so many candidates, but best of luck um, out there, and thank you for always supporting. Our